0: You're right. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's really start with the word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we do praise you tonight for your goodness and your greatness. We thank you that you have worked sovereignly in our hearts, that you have called us, and that you have ordered our ways. We praise you for that. We praise you for this opportunity this week to uh, meet together, to live together, uh, to really gather around your word, uh, whether it's in informal conversation or at the meetings. Uh, We thank you for this word. Um, We thank you that it is sufficient, that we don't have to go hunting all over the place for another guideline, but that your word, which talks about you, is sufficient. I pray that you will bless our work this week as we consider Christian education. Uh, help us to think biblically about this crucial topic. Help us to be, to truly be covenant people who are concerned uh, for our children as well as ourselves. Uh, we thank you for the covenant that you have designed. and I pray that you will help me to be faithful and help all of us to... Deliberate in your word this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, your homework for next time is to study Matthew 26. Uh, get a copy of Noel Weeks' book on the Christian school and review the differences between rationalism and romanticism. Uh, put together a couple of questions that you can submit to me next time that I can cover and prepare for the final exam on Thursday. This family camp isn't that what we do here I'm lapsing back to my days as a professor at Grove City College where I started every class with with that ritual mainly because I used to forget giving the assignments at the end Uh, also I just thought I'd do this for the parents because uh, uh, anybody that would drag their kids to lectures on Christian education in the summertime uh, deserves to do a little bit of work themselves Uh, And can we learn only if we test? As I said, there will be a final exam on Thursday. Can we learn only if we test? Does all learning come through pain? Does it come through joy? Do we have to pick one of those? Well, maybe we'll get to that that this week. But I would like to thank you for the invitation to uh, come and and speak, thanks to the committee, uh, because this is a crucial issue. Uh, I can think of no more important issue than Christian education, especially for those of us who are uh, in the Reformed faith. And indeed, I think it is good that we have this topic along with uh, the consideration of the history of the OPC this week. It seems to me that these two topics do go together. Uh, Perhaps I could even steal the subtitle, Christian Education, Who Needs It? Well, I don't know, I don't think I will do that, but uh, it is a crucial thing for us to think about and often gets put on the back burner when it really does need to be put on the front burner, uh, especially for those of us in the Reformed tradition. Uh, those of you who follow the bookstores might notice that there's a new book out from Presbyterian Reformed. The title of that is Foundations of Christian Education by Louis Burkhoff and Cornelius Van Til, edited by Dennis Johnson, and I'd encourage you to get a hold of that. Uh, stressing the Importance of a reform view, a reform view on Christian education. In covenant theology, you know it is central that we pass on our faith to the next generation. And that's what we're going to be talking about this this week. In fact, in many ways, the Reformation itself was a product of educational technology. You think about the printing press, the importance of the printing press, um, that educational technology so long ago, that it played in the role, in the role of uh, Martin Luther's work in Europe. My personal interest in Christian education comes from many sources. I've got four kids, ages 13, nine, six, and three. Drew and Gwenna, Seth and, and Emma will be around here from time to time. Uh, we were part of the homeschooling bandwagon that got started back in 1980. Uh, at that time, I was working at a community mental health center as a psychologist Yes, I will admit that. Uh, I had a school psychology credential, so I could come in and be an advocate for parents who wanted to do homeschooling versus the commissar down at the local public school district. Often the superintendents did not want to let go of the kids. Often they wanted to have the say-so about the education of Christian kids. But we would go in there uh, using our tests, IQ tests, and things like that. Of course, that was only a trick. Uh, and then tried to advocate and argue and persuade, and uh, some of that did help. Uh, As I mentioned, I was a professor at Grove City College for five years, uh, taught in education and counseling, those kind of things, so dealt a lot with the issues of the day there. Uh, Yes, I taught the boring old Ed Psych course, but tried to liven that up a little bit with debates about creationism and what was really in the textbooks and values clarification and let's see, uh, 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 who should decide where kids go to school and all those kind of things. And that did indeed liven it up. Uh, currently, I'm, I'm an elder at Bayview, uh, also serving on the Covenant Christian School, school Board, uh, where we're working very hard to have a good, reformed Christian school. So you see, the things I'm presenting to you are really not just academic, but but they're very practical as well. We've also started a foundation to investigate the use of technology like computers and video discs and so on in Christian education. We've started that down in San Diego as well. And working with CCF, Christian Counseling and Educational Foundation, part of that name is education. One of the things we want to do there is help to train pastors and elders and lay people to do biblical counseling, not warmed-over Psychological counseling in any way, but biblical counseling that stands as the alternative for humanistic psych- psychology and counseling that people might go to when they have trouble. Um, so my personal interest in this really began in those days when I was in the slough of despond in psychology at UC, Berkeley, and uh, really came to uh, see the inadequacy of the humanistic approach to education and the imperative, the absolute necessity of a God-centered education. Now for this um, series, we're going to look at Christian day and homeschooling. That's gonna be the emphasis over these four sessions. There's a number of ways we could go with Christian education. We could consider it in the family as you catechize your children, as you have family devotions and just work informally with them there. Uh, A formal instruction, we could talk about punishment, uh, but that's not a real good topic for summertime, is it, kids? Okay, we'll just drop that one. Uh, But just the informal instruction by personal word and deed, or we could talk about the church, Christian education in the church.
1: Uh, We were privileged to have Tom Tyson at our church
0: uh, just a couple of weeks ago, where he gave us an example of how he does catechism with uh, junior high age kids and it was really interesting to see him in the process of that. That's very, very important, very crucial as well. Uh, We could even talk about Christian education uh, in perspective of the state. Now, that might be a little more difficult for those of us who are critical of public schooling, but nevertheless, there is an aspect of of, um, Christian education that needs to consider the state, that is being obedient, as we're taught in Romans 13, uh, how we're to participate in our government and support it and and be good critics and things like that. But what we will concentrate on in these four sessions is Christian education in the day in the home school. Uh, I've passed out, or I've had the kids help me pass out some uh, flyers that give you a, an overview of what we're going to look at. We're going to look at uh, who is teaching in the Christian home and day school. We're going to look at... Uh, the process of teaching, how they're teaching. We're going to look at what they're teaching and we're going to look at when people are teaching. So that will be the emphasis. Let me ask you, just right off the bat, so I don't want to really embarrass you or anything, but be interested in knowing the audience. The speaker is supposed to know his audience. How many people here have Christian kids in the public school? Can I see hands on that? Okay. How many here have Christian kids in reformed Christian school. How many kids? Kids, raise your hands. Okay. All right. How many kids? How many kids are in Christian schools that are not Reformed per se? Maybe Baptist or Pentecostal or something like that. Okay, a few of those. All right. And how many kids are homeschooling right now? Do you have homeschoolers, or you plan to homeschool? Okay. It gives you an idea of the audience. All right. So you have the overview, and what I'd like to start with tonight is a consideration of who is teaching, regardless of the context, who is doing the teaching, and let's turn in our Bibles first of all to Colossians chapter 2 and take a look at the work of Paul there. Colossians chapter 2, I'll be working with the NIV tonight. I'd like to read the first five verses of Colossians chapter 2 of Paul's very important letter here where he is exhorting the church to follow what another teacher, Epaphras, has just been doing. Paul here is acting as a master teacher, supervising another teacher, and really he's very pleased with the job that this first teacher has done with the church, but yet he's very concerned about those that might... Steal some away, or false teacher, teachers that might come in to the to the church there at Colossae. Colossians chapter two, verses one through five. I want you to know how much I am struggling for you, and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not met me personally. My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love. thus far the reading of God's Word. So we have the context here for Colossians 2, that Paul, there's a battle going on. There's a battle going on in the church at Colossa, Laodicea, and I'd say there's a battle going on in Southern California as well, especially in the realm of counseling and education. We see that battle every day. Heresies were threatening the purity of the teaching in the local church. Um, There were other... Ideas that were to be added to the sufficiency of Christ. And that really could be another subtopic for these addresses this week. That Christ is sufficient in education. The sufficiency of Christ is being attacked here. Paul is concerned that the Judaizers might come in the back door. Or perhaps the the proponents of mystery religions might come in. Or perhaps uh, some other variation of uh, Plato's philosophy might come in the back door of the church. He's concerned about that. He's agonizing over that. He's praying for them. He's teaching. And we need to be concerned in our day and age as well, too, that anything might be added to Christ's gospel. So Paul is struggling. He's agonizing. We see in verse 1, I want you to know how much I am struggling for you. The struggle, struggle is really like an athlete in a contest. Okay, how many of you kids play in sports? See those hands? Okay. Yes, even Jackie, the kid over here, playing softball, right? Okay. Might be soccer, might be football. Takes hard work, doesn't it? It Takes a lot of practice, doesn't it? Well, Paul is working that hard for the, the people in the churches. He's been working hard, he's been discussing, he's been praying, he's been talking. Okay, you play sports. Is there a difference between practice and a real game? Things get kind of intense, don't they, in a real game? I mean, the practice is one thing. You might use the old balls. You know, you have your old clothing on and so on. But what happens when the game time comes? brand new shiny ball that's kind of slippery because everybody's so sweaty trying to play with it. Okay, nice uniforms are on. The pressure is up, right? Well, that's the kind of pressure that Paul feels as he's exerting himself and straining and caring about uh, what's going on in the church. And indeed, that's the kind of intensity that we need to have for our kids as we think about what's going on in education today. Because there are many subtle philosophies out there. You know, I know, I've been duped by a number of them. Not only by God's grace am, am I here. But we have to be really struggle and agonize. And, and it is hard to decide where the kids should go to school. Who should be the teacher? Regardless of the decision that you've made on that, it's not a final decision, is it? There's third grade, then there's fourth grade, then there's fifth grade. And in some cases, we get very um, solidified and in place with a Christian school, and we're thankful for what we have going in Chula Vista. and we're, It's not easy, but we're working hard there, and we have confidence in the teachers. But I know, in my days as a professional psychologist, in my days with CCF, talking to parents about their kids in schools, that it's an ongoing often in in schools, certainly in the public schools and in many Christian schools as well. Is this the place for my child? Is this the teacher for my child? Who should be teaching my child? So we struggle point by point, the same kind of agonizing struggle. I've experienced some of that struggle working with Christian Counseling and Educational Foundation out here with George Scipione and Jay Adams a little bit. In fact, I remember uh, after coming out here and being here for a little while, I had this dream one night. It was like I was in Beirut, okay? You know, Beirut, where they've been having all the, the fighting for years and kind of going house to house. Had that same kind of feeling, you know, in dealing with, with people who are coming in with problems and they've been to this psychologist or this licensed marriage and family therapist. And uh, how could we not only help them with the problem from a biblical point of view, but how can we debrief them from the humanistic perspective Philosophies that are in, in that uh, psychology that they've come from. And the same is true for many people who've been in the public schools as well, and even some, some private schools which have more of a baptized humanism approach than a Christian approach. But false teachings really take a lot of attention. I was really struck the other night when Cal Cummings, our missionary to Japan, was visiting our church and telling us about his work in, in Japan. Uh, he'll be going back there in a couple of months, they do have a Christian school in Tokyo that they're going to enroll their kids in. And I have a friend that's going over there in September. We're going to try to set up some visits and so on. The uh, Christian Academy in Japan, I believe, is the name of that. We need to pray for those folks. But the problem that they have there in their, in their schools is, is actually in a lot of ways similar to what we have in public schools here. Now, in Japan, it's Shintoism. Shinto is the, the major religion. There's some Buddhism, but... Shinto is a major religion, and Cummings is talking about Shintoism in Japan where they have this polytheistic ancestor worship. You go into three quarters of Japanese homes and you see a god shelf. You know what a god shelf is. That's where all the the idols are that represent the various ancestors. And so you bow down, you deal with, you you pray to the various ancestors because, you know, Grandpa Jones will give you uh, special help and, and special luck for the coming year, for your business, and so on. That's that's Shintoism. And he was saying how hard it is for people to change out of that because it's been there for 2,000 years. And another comment he made about that was that people in Japan have a very hard time uh, considering the black and white, considering absolutes for certainties. They probably have a tough time with us in the OPC. Uh, They're always saying, well, it could be this way, it could be that way, kind of going back and forth, back and forth. He said that was was typical and saying that it it was really hard to to break through that when they were doing their missionary work to to the Japanese. Now, while we might never send our child to a Shinto school, what happens when we send our kids to secular schools? And secular schools might be public schools. They might be Christian schools sometimes as well that aren't really clear about their Christian point of view. Don't we also have a 2,000-year-old heritage of a false religion? What about Greek philosophy? It's very similar, really. Polytheism, all the gods going back and forth. can never know anything for certain. We call it secular humanism today, but it's just, you know, it's not a new age. It's just a a variation on the old age. So we need to consider who's teaching our children. Paul goes on in verse 2 here to make a very personal comment. He says, Be encouraged. Have joy. Uh, My purpose is that you may be encouraged in heart. And there is truly a need for joy and unity. For us here in our conference, for us in our presbytery, and also for the teacher and the student, there needs to be unity. Is that not so? I've entitled this series, Education as Discipleship, but for a very important reason. And that is because in our culture today, we tend to look at education as just dispensing information the way a pharmacist might dispense pills. Did you ever watch the pharmacist count out the pills, how fast they go, and how they put it into a little container and that kind of thing? Well, isn't that what teachers do? They have so much information they have to give, and they dispense it out there and then give it to us? It's not that way. Education is discipleship, regardless of what we want to call it. Now, our culture today might say that it's that totally rational and objective, but it's really not. There really is a connection between the teacher and the student, a personal connection, and Paul is acknowledging this just by the way as he's talking to these people in his letter. Um, Because of this personal aspect of all education, it's important to consider the heart in education. The heart must be won. While you might be able to distribute pills in a mechanical way and have people walk away and take the pill, digest it and it'll work, we can't do that in education. We can't just cram the facts into the kids' heads and expect that there's going to be a good result. We've got to win the hearts of the kids. And how many kids In our covenant reformed churches have we lost because we've had a mechanical approach to our Christian education. And perhaps that's in our families, could be in our churches. Certainly it's often been in our schools where we say that education is just a matter of dispensing the pills, just dispensing the facts, just giving the facts out to the kids and not really winning their hearts. I want to do an advertisement for a book here. Uh, the Christian School by Noel Weeks. There's another Cummings connection here because this is Cal Cummings' brother-in-law. okay. And I was talking to Cal last week about this book and Noel is very pleased with some of the reaction that he's getting from it. He makes the point here in this, at the beginning of this book that while schools can do a lot in terms of education, the crucial we need to look at, them. indeed that's what the book is about, Christian School, the informal education in the family cannot be replaced. The informal education of the family. That is, your kids watching you and how you act. You know, teaching in deed as well as in in word. So that's something that we... That's the way to win the heart. Certainly in the home. But it's also true in the classroom. Not to the same extent. But it, it, it is there to and to a lesser degree, but still it is there. There still has to be a reaching out for the heart of the student. Otherwise, the kids know real fast if you're trying to tune into the heart or if you're just dispensing the pills, just dispensing the education. The heart is the fulcrum. Uh, consider Proverbs 4.23, Matthew 12.34, 15.19, 22.37. won't take time to look them up now, but all these crucial passages about the heart. Out of the heart come the issues of life. We want to reach the heart in Christian education. We don't just want to dispense the pills, dispense the pellets to people and just fill up their their rational mind. We want to win the hearts so that, that when they go out on their own, they won't break the covenant. Now they'll still be faithful to those things that they had learned from parents and teachers who really lived what they taught. And Jesus talks about the heart. Jesus says, you're either for, for me or against me. Well, what about this teacher that's teaching my kids? Is he for Christ or against him? That is the fulcrum. And indeed, there is an antithesis there. And we have problems with that.
1: We have problems with that black and white because we come from a 2,000-year heritage of Greek philosophy,
0: just like the Shinto people come from a 2,000-year heritage history of Shinto philosophy. We have trouble with that antithesis, but we need to consider it. And we need to ask the Lord to work in our hearts to be able to see the antithesis uh, about the people that we entrust our kids to. So who is the teacher? Hopefully the teacher is Christian. Hopefully that Christian is committed to the sufficiency of Christ and his word. Time for another Noel Weeks advertisement. Another book that he did just two years ago is, I should get some kind of cut or something, uh, the sufficiency of scripture. Again, published by Banner of Truth. Just very, very important work. Very helpful in, in all fields, I'd say. But he really emphasizes that the scripture is sufficient. Just like Paul, he's saying we don't need to add anything to the gospel or God's word. We don't need psychology. We don't need humanistic education. It's time to get over the Christian inferiority complex, okay? Christians really are the ones who started, the, the started education and science and the universities and the great music. That's our heritage. We're going to talk this week about the heritage of the OPC. It's a terrific heritage. We look at Mason and Van Till and others. They were really at the top of their field. Their work is just great, and it still resonates today, even though it was written, a lot of that was written 50 years ago. We're reading the same works, and it's right on. We need to get over our Christian inferiority complex, and we need to, to trust the Lord. We need to, to see that Christ and his word is sufficient and then build up from there our, our education, our counseling, and all these things. Let's turn to the first chapter of Genesis and do a little bit of that tonight. I know time's moving along, but I do want to uh, take some time in the first chapter of Genesis to get some insight into the who of teaching, and what greater who than God the Father. Let's look at some aspects of his teaching. Genesis 1 27 through 218. I won't take the time to read the whole passage, but just kind of go through it and hit a few of the highlights. Uh, As you know, God created the heavens and the earth. and created man, and he made a garden. He placed man in that garden. He gave man a job to do. Then he taught man. He walked with man in the cool of the day, about this time of day. He walked with man, and he taught man. He gave him his word. And as long as man obeyed his word, he was able to subdue the garden and to work in the garden and be happy. To have knowledge and righteousness and holiness. So too today, because of the second Adam, this is our heritage as well, if we are faithful to Him. So God created man in His own image, and the image of God He created created him, male and female He created them. God created man in His own image, and because of this, He is personal. And now, finally, we pick up on the outline that's in your your bulletins. Um, he's personal. Created in the image of a personal God. That's the grounding for us to say that man is a person. You know, I've had professors before, uh, for instance, at the University of Pittsburgh, who are very highly esteemed in their field. They're, well, they're cranks in some ways, but I mean, at least in their field, they're not cranks, they're mainstream. And they could give to you an argument that man is no different than a machine that there is really no difference between personality and minerals, rocks, machines. I went to a lecture one time over Carnegie Mellon, given by one of the top cognitive, well, he was one of the top two cognitive scientists in, in the world. And I'm telling you, as you, as you listen, I listen carefully, and I've been in this discussion about artificial intelligence for 15 years, as you listen, You could not tell when he was talking about a man or a computer. I mean, he talked about computers and men in the same way. Okay, where is ethics? Where is beauty once we do that? How do we know that we're personal? How do we know that? God, the Bible tells me so, right kids? The Bible tells me so, that's how we know. We are persons because the Bible tells us so. So we have personal freedom of choice. and we need to work to have to, with our children so they'll choose the right answers in their heart versus impersonal kind of formulas, the dispensing of the pills, uh, treating our students as if they're computers, and if I just put in the right program, if I just prepare intellectually for these lessons even with you, that I can just program you and you'll have the right answers. Well, no way. Right away you're going to say, Peterson, wait a minute, you're not going to be programmed by me. Okay? And I'm glad that you think that. You know, because you're people, you're individuals, you're persons, and you need to consider what I'm saying in the light of God's word and then make up your own mind. I, I need by the Spirit's help to reach your heart, and we need by the Spirit's help to reach our students' hearts, not through an impersonalized sort of formula, go to teacher education and learn how to teach, and then you do one, two, three, and then the kids will all learn. That never works. That doesn't work. You can't work with people that way. And we can't have centralized control. We can't have our pedagogy or our style of teaching and our curriculum come out of Washington, D.C. What do they know? Okay, I mean, take a look at Washington, D.C. You know, they need to clear up their own house. You know, the illiteracy there in in the District of Columbia, let alone tell San Diego what kind of curriculum or tell Grove City, Pennsylvania, what kind of curriculum to have. So our teacher must be personal Why? Because the Bible tells us that we are personal and we need to have that approach. That who is teaching must be personal. That person must also be authoritative. Let's take a look at verses 28 through 30. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, "I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every every green plant for food." And it was so. The Lord did it. It was so. Take a look at chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and care for it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. But, and listen to this authority, you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. More authority. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. Was that true? Was God an authority? Did he speak authoritatively? Was he being too hard-nosed? Was he cutting the antithesis to black and white? No, he told man the truth. And indeed, he was right. The Lord is the basis for everything. The Creator is in charge. And again, this is one of the characteristic tenets of the Reformed faith. That God is sovereign. That we start with God. We start with his word. Without him, there is no ground to stand on in a smaller way in a reflective sort of way a teacher is like that as well a teacher is delegated to him or her the the authority from the parent which comes from God and the teacher must be able to be authoritative the the teacher is a delegate of the parent who is an agent of God to raise the child again we have discipleship rather than information uh, dispensation discipleship and this is not relativism Relativism is rampant today in education. Higher education, public schooling, Christian schooling, relativism. Well, it if you're brought up in Japan and you're brought up as Shinto, God will take that into consideration when you die and when you're judged. Surely, I mean, won't he do that? Because you were brought up in that culture? I mean, what can you expect? I mean, that, that culture has certain norms, and sociologists have studied this, and so let's let's understand people according to their relative context. Well, that's not the message of the Bible. The Bible speaks to all cultures contextually, but really in the same way. It's the same message to all cultures. It's an authoritative message. Okay, moving on through a short list here. The teacher should be respectful. One of the main problems that I saw when I worked as a psychologist in the public schools and then later at CCF Going into the schools with parents, talking with administrators and other psychologists and teachers and so on, was a lack of respect. A lack of respect from the school toward the parent. I mean, when, when parents walk into to schools, they're on enemy territory. The administrator is in charge. And if you don't believe me, go ahead and do it and, and see how you feel. It was like going to court for these people whenever they would have a conference about their kids. Even if it was just a learning sort of problem, it was like being in court. And they were surrounded by seven or eight professionals around the table. Where's the respect? And the parents are not completely clean here either. You know, what respect do parents have for teachers? And regardless of public school, private school, whatever, we still should respect other people to some extent. We still should be polite and we should you know, have certain manners and so on not go in and really you know, jump up on top of the ta- table and scream and yell and all that kind of stuff there should be respect what about respect between students and teachers I remember walking the hallways of certain public high schools and it was like well here's the kids up and down the hallways and here's a few teachers sneaking by it was two different cultures now, this is education, is there respect there? And what about the teachers respecting the students? You know, often the, the teachers would just want to control the, the group, uh, if that, or might just say, well, shine it on. You know, if, if we can't get the lesson done today, well, you know, there's always tomorrow. Sort of lack of This is rampant today in our education. Now, maybe my experience is idiosyncratic. Maybe it's just individual. Maybe it's just me. Okay, and I just happen to be some weird schools, and I'm a weird person. Well, there's been a lot of other weird people writing big, fancy studies about this as well uh, for the last 10 years that, that we can consult uh, later. Um, teachers, So, we should be respectful. Let's take a look at verse 31 in chapter 1. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. God made a good creation. There was res- there's respect here in the biblical view. And we need to have respect for others as well. A teacher should be an example. A teacher needs to be an example. God did pleasing and creative work so that man can imitate with innovative care of the garden. A teacher has to teach by example. So much of education today is child-centered. It centers on the child. The child determines when this is studied or when that is studied. And that's not right. That's not biblical. We need to have teachers as examples. The education should be biblical. Adam was to live by God's word. The teacher-student relationship should conform to biblical principles. We should use God's word to to solve problems and establish authority, to find grace to obey and solve these problems, to really have neuthetic counseling in the classroom. And one of the problems in a, a secular public school or an inconsistent Christian school is that the Bible is not on the desk and the teacher can't or won't open it up to solve problems. And we do, do need to open up the Bible to solve problems. We need to use the scripture. Uh, education is interpersonal. It's social. And, there, and social problems come, come up. There's a lack of respect. There's resentment. And there's hassles. And, and uh, you know somebody always hates the teacher, or the teacher hates somebody in the classroom. How is that to be resolved? Well, we have biblical ways for doing that. You know, if somebody has sinned against me, I need to go and confront them. If I've sinned against somebody, I need to go and ask for forgiveness. Okay, forgiveness means to promise not to bring it up again. Okay, that, and we need all these kind of things. We need to, to work with these biblical sort of principles. So I think you can see just from this quick look at, at Genesis 1 that there are some guidelines. And as I, I mentioned in your homework assignment, uh, Matthew 26, verses 36 to 46, is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Take a look at that scene and see if you can glean from that some more principles or attributes of a good teacher. Christ is the great teacher and there in the garden he's doing some fantastic teaching. In what sense is he authoritative In what sense is he personal? In what sense is he he respectful in what sense is he an example? And so you can do that sometime this week. So, I did want to take some time tonight to finish up here with a comment on one of the disciplines that we, per usual, study in a school. And I'd like to do that each night this week, take a discipline and talk about how we should look at it from a biblical perspective. And again, it's not enough to call ourselves a Christian school and maybe even order Christian textbooks, but we need to really follow through and teach this who, this this person who's up there in front teaching, needs to teach in a biblical way on all of the disciplines. And we're squeezing a lot in this week, but I'd like to make a few comments on the discipline of history tonight and then move on, as you see in the, the table that I gave you, move on tomorrow night, to language and literature, the next night science, and then finally mathematics. And yes, there is a biblical perspective on mathematics. Uh, so let's start tonight with history, and I hope that this will be of help to you, if, whether you're a teacher or a, uh, a parent who's going to homeschool, or perhaps if you're a student, you can pick up something from this for thinking about your history classes. And in general, I'd like to to the young people who are here that it's very important to listen carefully to how I'm talking about who your teacher should be because you need to appreciate when your teacher is like this, that is respectful and authoritative and so on, but also if your teacher is not like that and you spot it and maybe even talk to your parents about it, you need to pray for that person and you need to help them to be more like the kind of teacher that the Bible talks about kind of teacher that, that Christ was. So it's important to consider all of these these uh, characteristics of a good teacher uh, who is teaching you. So, history. Well, we've been reading in Genesis, and indeed, history must start with the sixth day creation by our Lord. This is a biblical belief, and that's where it has to start. When we don't start with this belief, pretty soon we're lost in space. We're in sort of a timeless kind of uh, chaos for history. Only when we have a good view of creation do we see that life really is meaningful, that it really is on a stage, and what happens today is important. You see, if you have an evolutionary view that there's just been these millions, or can anybody do a good Carl Sagan imitation? Billions and billions of years uh, just going into the past What difference does one more year or one more month or one more day make? What difference does this talk make? It's just going to be a blip on the screen of history. Well, I pray that this talk does have meaning in God's eyes and by his grace does have meaning in your hearts. And you see a person that believes in creation that these words that we just read really are true sees that each day is better than lost in space. And every act is important. And the way you live your eighth year or your first grade year or the way you live your teenage years, so-called teenage years, it's very important. It has eternal ramifications. God will judge us every thought and every deed. So we need to have a biblical belief on creation. A world history course should start in the Garden of Eden. And indeed, I know teachers that are teaching that way. And it really is, is great. It really makes the, the education come alive. Now, if you're, if you're like me, I went to public school and my education really didn't hang together. If, if I could have had a history teacher start with creation, it would have been just great. Because I was a Christian and I loved my Bible. I loved my parents. And my parents took us to church and we loved all that. But it was like When I went to school, that was just another existence. That was... That wasn't for emphasis. Still on? Okay. It was really upsetting. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, that's just really an exciting way to start off a history class. To start with Creation. It puts it into perspective. And then you can see that history goes in a line. It's not just a circle or meandering around all different places, but it goes in a line, and it has God's superintendence over it. Now, tomorrow, I am going to talk about those words I mentioned before, rationalism and romanticism, and I hope you don't yawn too much, but Weeks has given us a nice way to analyze current trends in humanistic education today with those two terms and I'll take time to explain them tomorrow. But when you have a secular approach, what you often end up doing is emphasizing just the facts or emphasizing just the interpretations that are in history. And as Christians, as biblical Christians, as reformed biblical Christians, we need to do both. We need to teach kids facts that, yes, there are facts, How do I know there are facts? How do I know there was a Napoleon, a Civil War, and so on? Well, the Bible tells me that there's a concrete reality and we can keep track of facts. Now, think about your own personal history. Okay? Some of us have longer histories than others. But, you know, did what happened five years ago really happen? I mean, sometimes things seem like sort of a dream. I I was living in Pennsylvania five years ago and it was muggy and hot and. Well, kind of like this, I guess. But anyway, did it really happen? Okay. Well, I know because the Bible tells me that God made the world, and He made me, and He made you. That everything's not just a figment of my imagination. So I know that there are facts, and I I know, and also I know that there's meaning in those facts. That what Thomas Jefferson did has a certain meaning. You know, he wrote the Declaration of Independence. It has a meaning for our country. It has a meaning in history. So that's an important thing that I can. Latch on to them. Think about it. At the same time, we have different interpretations. So when I interpret what happened five years ago in Pennsylvania or interpret Thomas Jefferson, well, then it gets a little, it does get a little murky sometimes. Okay? We can still have, see some regularities and we, not, it's not like everything's existential and we don't know anything about Thomas Jefferson, but it's not absolutely clear. And we need to teach kids that, well, there are some different interpretations. We have the absolute clear guidelines from the Bible with which to help us with that interpretation. We don't have perfect knowledge, but there is interpretation we have to consider. Okay, what do we do as we interpret uh, the hippies or as we interpret World War II, General Patton? What do we do as we interpret those kind of things? Well, let's take some biblical principles that we can use. First one would be that, that there is providence versus chance. That God was in control in World War II. That God was in control in the 60s when we have all these hippies running around. Okay, that those things didn't happen just by chance. We're not just evolving, kind of meandering around in history, going in circles and so on. But God is in charge. God is in control. Secondly, we want to look in history to find the responsibility that is there, personal responsibility. Napoleon was responsible for what he did. Lenin, you heard of Lenin, Marx, Lenin, Stalin. They're responsible for what they did. Hitler, responsible for what they did. They did some very evil things. And God will hold them accountable. There's responsibility. We don't say that they were just caused by their environment. Well, Hitler had a poor childhood. Or Stalin went to seminary and that's what did it. Okay? Okay. Okay, he's responsible whether he went to seminary or not, which he did, by the way. Okay, it's not just his genes or his environment. He's responsible. We also need to take a look in history at the great men, the great men. Now, there are on your bibliography that I gave you, and that may be of no interest to some and of great interest to others, there are some history books listed there by Paul Johnson, and he's one of the most recent proponents of studying history by looking at the great men. You know, who was Stalin, who was Hitler, who was Roosevelt, uh, you know, who was uh, Cromwell, and so on. We need to study the great men. And you see, that's a more Christian approach to history, because the approach to history today that's being given to you by those professors I studied with at UC Berkeley and Pittsburgh and so on, is a history just that just studies the conditions. What kind of food did they grow, you know, and where did the rivers go? That's, Im- that's important after we've looked at the great men and we've determined responsibility, but what they're doing is just reducing all of that to just geography. And, in fact, I've brought along some toys with me this week. I brought along an interactive video disc player and a computer, and tomorrow, if I can, about 4 o'clock, I'm going to set that up in this room. If anybody's interested in this computer-like toys, you can come. And what I have is a video disc that just was published by National Geographic... And Lucas Films. How many kids have heard of Lucas Films? Star Wars and so on? Okay, yeah. There's our teacher, right? He has gone together with National Geographic to put together a history video disc. It's called History from a Geographical Perspective. Okay? And he explains our nation and uh, world history in terms of geography. Did you know that the pilgrims came to this country because they were crowded? <laughs> it was Too crowded in Europe? That's why they came here? Well, that's what Luke, George Lucas will tell you. And uh, I want to show, I want Christians to know about this technology. I also want to critique that with you tomorrow afternoon if you want to come by at 4 o'clock. Uh, but that's a good example of, of explaining history according to conditions that are going on rather than people, rather than the great people. Then finally, um, we need to see the connectedness in history. That history is not just all these spots all around, okay? Isolated bits of things. Well, you know, a, a, a robin had an egg in Europe in 1892 and, you know, a frog was jumped over a, a lily, well, onto a lily pod in and, and, and 1923 and, and Peter Rabbit was written, you know, sometime later. All these kind of different things just all over the place, okay? History is interconnected, and we need to, to give the kids a framework, framework to understand that. Well, this is where the who becomes important again. Who is giving your kids that framework? And just as we should study the great men in history, and we see how people are responsible and important in history, they're also responsible and important in the classroom. So what are we to do? Because we have some real problems today. Uh, in, in the secular textbooks, uh, we've pretty much revised out Christianity. You may have heard of a study by Dr. Paul Vitz Vitz from New York University, another one of those psychologists who uh, has done something good. He's looked at all the textbooks, humanistic textbooks, and he's written down the number of times that Christianity is referred to. How many times do you think that the 12 top publishers of textbooks in grades 1 through 6 refer to Christianity? Very, very few. Occasionally occasionally Picture of a church, occasionally a picture of a mission. But but almost never do they talk about Christianity, especially in social studies. I mean, what do 50 million people do every Sunday morning? And could that possibly have some significance for culture? Well, these secular humanistic publishers have said no, we don't want that. And it's becoming more and more blatant to the point where Norman Lear actually is complaining about it. Norman Lear is a people for the American way. He said, gee whiz, guys, come on, this is getting a little too blatant. You know, it's almost like some of the Soviets' diplomacy. Speaking of that, (laughs) another thing we need to do in history is look at the newspaper. We need to give our kids a guideline for how to understand the newspaper. Okay, what's in today's paper? This abortion bill in Louisiana was just passed again. Okay, this, I mean, they took out incest and rape, but... Another bill has gone past. How do we understand that? Isn't that part of history now? Now that it's in the New York Times and the LA Times, isn't that part of history? Yeah, well, how do we understand that? Now, what about all this stuff that Gorbachev is doing? Berlin Wall's down. Pretty impressive. But do we see any repentance? I've never seen Gorbachev repent yet. And I know my Bible tells me that unless a man repents, we're not to trust him. But what are we doing as a country? Okay, see how important it is Who teaches our children? Because those people teaching our children are going to be giving these kind of frameworks. It's important to know that this country was not purely a Christian country in any way, but it was greatly influenced by the Christian worldview. And the impetus for the exploration of this country can be documented. In fact, Lawrence Kremen, a secular historian, has documented that the English Puritan preachers were absolutely crucial in exploration in the 1600s. Now, sure, the businessmen got in there, and there was a lot of money grubbing and all this, and the slave trading came later and all that, but there are very important documents that we don't read about. For instance, um, Hakluyt's document, Discourse of Western Planting. I never heard of it. Now, maybe that's just me, but I doubt that many people have heard about it unless you're a Puritan scholar. And it was, it, was a, a, it was done on behalf, well, it was done along with Sir Walter Raleigh, independent along with, it was presented to Queen Elizabeth. And it became her rationale for coughing up the money to get the exploration of the new world started on the part of the English. Pretty important, it was a Christian there. Do we hear about that? No. Okay, what are we to do? We need to have biblical guidelines as we teach history, we need to, to look at the great men in history. We need to read biographies. Uh, you know, read about the military heroes, other heroes, uh, the missionaries, the people who have done uh, good in our country and so on. Look at the people. We need to use primary sources. And in the project that we have going down San Diego, we're, we're trying to build computer-based curriculum. We're going to put those primary sources on disk. Okay, we've lost the battle of the textbook. We want to work on the battle of the computer because that's coming next. Uh, we need to then look at the common folk and conditions. We need to have this larger framework. We need to look for right and wrong in history. We need to use our Bibles and look for right and wrong. We, we need to look for the antithesis in historical events. And then we also need to write history. Have you ever, how many people have heard of the Foxfire series? You need to check it out. It's pretty impressive. Some school people down in Georgia gave kids tape recorders and said, kids, go out and talk to all the old people you can talk to in the community and tape record the interview and then transcribe it, and you'll have history. You'll be making history. Now, that can be just fun and games, and we don't do that first. We have to give them the the facts and the framework first, but it's a very important thing to do, And, and Weeks describes that kind of project as well. Then we need to teach the purpose of history, how we see God's covenantal treatment um, in in history, and indeed that's what we're told to do in Deuteronomy six. After uh, the Lord is giving Moses the classic passage that uh, we we cite for, for for schooling, in Deuteronomy six, we go down the page, and we see that that the children have grown older, and. In, verse, in Deuteronomy 6, starting verse, verse 20, in, in the future, when your son asks you what is the meaning of the stipulations, decrees, and laws of the Lord our God has commanded you, tell him. What does he tell him? Well, he gives him a history lesson. We were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Before our eyes, the Lord sent miraculous signs and wonders, great and terrible upon Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household, but he brought us out from here, out from there, to bring us in and give us the land that he promised on oath to our forefathers. The Lord commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear the Lord our God so that we might also always prosper and be kept alive as in the, is the case today. And if we are careful to obey all this law before the Lord our God as he has commanded us, that will be our righteousness. And so we can analyze history in that way. I mean, we're given a perfect lesson here. And consider, too, Psalm 136, as as the psalmist recounts all the events that happens. And each time the people respond, with his mercy endures forever. So history really needs to be a very spiritual kind of thing. Uh, Not spiritualized, but a, a very integral part of our Christian education because it gives us opportunity to praise God, to glorify him. Well, how must history be taught? What processes should we use? Well, that's where we start to talk about pedagogy. Pedagogy is the style of teaching or how you teach, and we'll have some ideas about that tomorrow. So we're all done. And what I'd like to do is take a brief break so that those who would like to leave can leave. And for those who would like to ask some questions to discuss things further, I'll wait right here. Uh, let's have a word of prayer before we finish. Father, we do thank you for all that you have done as we've recounted it today. You have made us, you have made all things. Help us to never forget that. We thank you for your word that reminds us of that. Lord, we see that you are sufficient. Help us to remember Paul's admonition to us and his encouragement. To lean on you, to realize that you and your word is the sufficiency that we need for all things. That we do not have to depend on psychology or humanistic education, but that we can rest uh, in the hope and the love and the grace that you give us for all of life and godliness. We thank you for all these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay.